0: Discipleship is leading people to increasingly submit all of life to the empowering presence and lordship of Christ. So says Jeff Vanderstelt, and he's our guest this week on the podcast, talking about how we should ramp up the way we do discipleship in our churches. It's all in episode 56 of the Church Leaders Podcast. Welcome to the Church
1: Leaders Podcast, where we're helping you lead better every day. And now here's your host, podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, Andrew Hess.
0: Thanks for tuning in to episode 56 of the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm Andrew Hess, your host, and this week our guest is Jeff Vanderstelt. Jeff is the visionary leader of Saturate, where he trains disciples of Jesus to make even more disciples of Jesus. Jeff leads the Saturate team. He travels nationally and globally, equipping others to do the work of ministry and uh, has several books. Uh, But we wanted to talk to Jeff about a new work that he has called the Saturate Field Guide, uh, where it just it walks groups through step by step how they can grow in discipleship, and now here's my conversation with Jeff Vanderstel. Well, Jeff, welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. It's great to have you on today. That's great to be here. Thanks, Jeff. You uh, have been working with Ben Connolly uh, to change the way that leaders think about discipleship. What led you to take on discipleship as something you wanted to uh, speak into?
1: Well, I spent 14 years in youth ministry and saw Uh, students as young as, you know, 11, 12 years old, upwards to 19, you know, years old, come to know Jesus, lead their friends to Christ, uh, be trained to to make disciples who can make disciples. And then I watched them graduate in what they often called big church. And most cases, they, they were encouraged to take a seat, invite a friend, maybe give, maybe serve in children's ministry or something like that. But in a lot of cases, it's like they were encouraged to almost stop making disciples, though I know no pastor would ever say that. It's just, it got communicated that they weren't going to be on the front lines as much as they were in youth ministry. And I think after seeing that happen in three or four different churches, I came to a place where I knew we've got to start calling the church back to the, the mission of being disciples who make disciples, which led to us planting a church in Tacoma, Washington called SOMA. And as we did that, we really intended to just build the church in such a way that everybody would be seen as a frontline disciple-maker, that we're all called to be uh, disciples of Jesus, who make disciples of Jesus. And as we did that, we found that uh, when you train and develop and equip people, they really, by the power of the Spirit with the Word of God, are are effective disciple-makers. And so I finally was encouraged to write the book Saturate, uh, which really encapsulates a vision of gospel saturation, where every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus in word and deed, and really the book itself is just teaching people how to be disciples in the everyday stuff of life so it's not the professionals it's not the event based christianity that does it but it's god's people in all of life that are disciple makers and then as we wrote that i wrote that book it became apparent many people wanted a guide to go along with it to really help people begin to put into practice the principles and that's where ben and i connected to see if we could develop this book he's also leading uh, church and churches in the same way as part of the Soma family of churches, and he's done in Fort Worth. So the combo of our, our learning and efforts has led us to really want to serve and equip the church to live this out in everyday life.
0: Mm-hmm. And how is the field guide different than the book?
1: The book really is a a narrative of my journey of leading people in this way, and so it tells some of the story of my own life, the story of Soma, and it really, its intent is to cast a vision to everyday people, their call to be disciple-makers in everyday life. And then the, the workbook is a lot more of a guide in uh, like based in biblical study. Here, let's take you through a study, eight weeks, daily study and prayer and practices that ideally are best accomplished when you're doing it together with a community. Uh, so the the I'd say the book gives a vision. The workbook helps you really take next steps to work it out.
0: Mm-hmm. You begin the Saturate Field Guide with Habakkuk 2.14. Can you share that verse with us and and talk about how it captures the message of the book?
1: Yeah, in that passage, uh, we hear of a prophetic vision of a day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so what you hear there is a a saturation point of of the knowledge of God's glory uh, across the entire earth. And the book itself, both the book and the workbook, are intending to say, what does it really take? What does that mean? Well, Paul says in Colossians 1.27, Christ in you is the hope of glory, Uh, that the the means by which God will bring His glory, the knowledge of His glory to the world, is through His people, the Church, filled with the Holy Spirit, who are uh, living for Jesus' fame and glory. And so a big push in the book is to really say, what would it look like if we believe that that's God's intent, and that we are the means by which he wants the world to come to know and see the glory of, of the Lord through our lives. And in particular, not just for an hour and a half on Sunday, you know, at a special uh, gathering of the body of Christ, but rather through his people in the stuff of everyday life, because the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians one twenty-two and 23, that Christ is the head of His Church, which is His body in which He fills all in all. And the idea is that all of life is meant to be wrought under the, the Lordship of Christ. All of life is meant to be the place in which the glory of the Lord is being seen and proclaimed to His people. So that's the hope of the, the book and the workbook, is what might it look like if we really, really embrace this idea of an all-of-life discipleship, an all-of-life worship, an all-of-life kind of glorifying God approach.
0: One of the first uh like things I noticed as I was going through this material is you you shift the way that we think about how we live with Jesus. You talk about um, you know, how a lot of times leaders will go out and say, Oh, just go be Jesus. And and you kinda <laughs> clarify that a little bit. Talk about the clarification that you think we need to make on that.
1: Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. Um I, I used to say, you know, go be Jesus to your city, and then I realized as I watched people burn out and <laughs> become overwhelmed that that what I was calling them to do was something that the Bible doesn't call them to do. The Bible doesn't call them to go be Jesus. The, The Bible calls them to be filled with Jesus by his spirit and let Jesus be Jesus in us and through us. And that's why Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing in John 15. And so more and more what I'm encouraging people to do is Be you, be broken, be needy, be weak, and it's in your weakness, it's in your brokenness that the power of God is perfected in you. It's in your neediness that we can proclaim only Jesus can actually save, only Jesus can actually transform the world. And so, Jesus, fill me with yourself by your Spirit, work through me. I want to walk in dependency and humility and absolute trust in you to work in my heart, to work through my life. And the more that we're walking in submission to him and the more that we're walking full of him, the more the world sees him and not us. And so, therefore, we're not trying to replace Jesus. We're becoming temples of God. We're carriers of the very presence of Christ wherever we go. And that takes the weight off us. It takes the you know, the dependency on us away, and it puts us where we ought to be, which is a, a dependency on Jesus, a fullness of the Spirit, a confidence that ultimately Jesus will do the work, not that we do it. He does it in us. He does it through us. Mm-hmm.
0: Are there other things that, as you kind of look at uh, when people think discipleship, I know that people think a lot of different things. What are the big errors that you feel like, man, if, if we think this, we're really missing what God's trying to do?
1: Well, my observation is that a lot of people think discipleship is a classroom type of thing. Like we got to teach the doctrines. If they get the doctrines, then we've made good disciples. Or there's you know if you if you just go through a ten week curriculum, then now you're a disciple. Or you know, I mean there's a variety of things. Some people see discipleship as one on one. So what I'll often say is that for me, discipleship as I look at the scriptures is leading people to increasingly submit all of life to the empowering presence and lordship of Christ. That's how I define it. And in order to do that, that means it's a life-on-life life deal, because we're got to help each other grow in all of life into likeness and dependency on Jesus. Um, it's a life and community thing, because if it's only one-on-one, then I become more like the person who's discipling me instead of like Jesus. And so I need to have a body discipling me, many different members pouring into me, who, because the, the body of Christ is that. It's many people, men, women, and variety of gifts. And then I've found that you, you really don't make disciples of Jesus if you stay in a classroom or only in one-on-one, because not only do you need life on life, life in community, but you need life on mission. You need to get out into the mission field and and realize, man, I can't do this without Jesus. The, that's the beauty of the commission is he calls us to make disciples, and he knows that we can't do it apart from him. And so it leads us actually to dependency on Christ. The very mission not only leads us to Jesus, it also reveals how much we need Jesus, because it shows our brokenness, our weakness, our insecurities, and it's in that place that we get to cry out for him even more. So I I think you've got to think through discipleship as being life on life, where you're visible and known, life in community, where there's more than one person pouring into you, and life on mission, where you're actually working out the, the very stuff of discipleship so that you realize how badly you need Jesus.
0: I really like that. and I think because a lot of times I feel like most of us who have grown up in the church or around the church, discipleship meant on oh, meeting with somebody one on one and we're getting together around coffee or food and just talking about life and and it's it's that kind of one on one. Talk about how you know if that's if that describes a leader that's listening to this right now, how should they shift into maybe more of a communal type of discipleship? What does that look like?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because I think a lot of people assume, man, if I just meet one-on-one with, once a week, that's an amazing thing. And that that's not bad, but here's what happens. I have no idea how they love their wife or their husband. I have no idea how they parent their children. I have no idea what their relationship with their neighbors are like. I mean, I really don't know much. They can give me an incredibly impressive narrative of what their last week was. And I don't have a clue if that's even accurate. Uh, In fact, a lot of times we are so blind to our own weakness that someone else needs to be close enough to point out what they see. And so self-confessing about what I did last week is oftentimes very limited. And so I, I encourage people to get into Uh, a smaller group of people that can live life together throughout the week. We call them missional communities in our church. But regardless of what you call them, a group of people who don't just meet isolated from life, but start to learn how to integrate life as part of their discipleship. So having meals together, enjoying being in each other's backyards and, you know, having, parties together, uh, going on vacations together, you name it. I mean, just take the stuff of every life and stop doing it alone and start doing it integrated with other Christians who are committed to your discipleship. And then the next step, I'd say, is you invite unbelieving people into those rhythms of life, and you'll begin to see how effective Christians are at really engaging the lost, which my observation is most leaders in the church don't have a clue how their people engage with people throughout the week because they're not really with them in those settings. So people do a pretty good job of acting like Christians on mission uh, when they're in a classroom or in are in a one-on-one or when they're on a Sunday gathering, but that's probably not the best place to disciple them because you want to see them in the, in their milieu in their natural setting and see how they respond to others. And that will tell you probably more truly what they're like, what they believe, where they need to grow in likeness
0: And I love that. Talk about the groups themselves, like practically what are the sizes that work for these groups and how do you deal with, like groups maybe growing too big?
1: Yeah, when we start a new group, we encourage them to be ideally, you know, six to eight adults somewhere around there with, and a lot of times just, you know, if they're if they're married and have children or are single parents with children, um, they'll have maybe half a dozen or dozen kids ideally i don't want to start much bigger than that because in fact that you know that would be like maybe 15 people um 12 to 15 the reason why i say that is because what we found is if you're really going to know each other well love each other well disciple each other well you can't be have too many people and then second you likely won't have much relational energy especially if you're more introverted to reach people who don't know Jesus if your group is so big. And so what often happens is Christians get together, study the Bible, pray, meet together, love each other, but they really have very little energy or time for anybody other than themselves. And so the group size is important in the starting. And then a lot of our groups, as they're effective on mission, reaching other people, they'll double in size, they'll grow up to 25 to 30. And all along, we try to start them with the intent that some people within the group are going to want to start another group to reach their neighbors or their friends. And so building that kind of seed of multiplication into the group at the very beginning is very important. And so uh, oftentimes, God will raise up leaders within, and then we'll send them out, and they'll start another group of four to eight uh, adults and begin again. So uh, once they start to get 30 to 40, it's pretty challenging uh, to meet and a lot of this is going to be dependent on size of home and, and the context you live in. But it's also hard to even really be effective on mission the larger you get.
0: Mm-hmm. And I, I love that. I think having that seed plant at the beginning is important because I've been part of groups that have multiplied. And in one of those multiplications kind of fall apart because people miss what they had originally and miss people and, mm-hmm. and all those just things that as long as you have the mission straight, all those things you can deal with, I think.
1: Yeah. In fact, what we found is oftentimes people do division instead of multiplication. So a group gets big and they split it in half and that's division. Whereas multiplication is a group raises up some leaders. They have a heart to reach some people. Uh, the group commissions them out, you know, to go and reach a new people group. So the group doesn't split in half. It sends some people out that really are ready, eager, and, and excited to go and, and reach maybe more people. And then when when you do that, you have to take the time to grieve the loss. And oftentimes in the mission of Jesus, we don't often take time to mourn and grieve. He promised us that we would, we would suffer, that we would lose, that there'd be things we'd have to give up. But oftentimes we don't slow down and mourn. And therefore, we don't experience the comfort that he promised he would give when we mourn. And if we don't experience that comfort in our losses, what we start to do is become calloused or hard, and we say, I'll never let that happen again. Instead of really embracing the suffering of Christ on the cross for what he did for us, now forming how we are willing to suffer for the sake of others. And when we embrace that and mourn it, he comforts us, he heals us, and he gives us a love for people that resembles his love for us.
0: Nice. Nice. Tell us about what you mean with the term—I mean, and you've already hinted at this, but when you use the term missional community, what does that mean to you?
1: Yeah, our definition of a missional community is a family of servant missionaries sent as disciples who make disciples. And we just get that definition from our baptism. We're baptized in the name of the Father, so we're family. We should love one another like brothers and sisters— we're baptized in the name of the sons who are servants of the the king. So family, servants, and then we're baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit, which means we're his missionaries, his sent people, empowered by the Spirit. So a missional community is a family who loves one another, of servants who serve one another like Jesus served us, of missionaries, family of servant missionaries who are sent to proclaim the good news of Jesus to people who don't yet know as well as to those who already do know, because we need to keep proclaiming Jesus to one another. So a family of servant missionaries sent as disciples who make disciples. And we, we chose the name missional community because I found that the church tends to swing the pendulum between mission and community that we're like, hey, you know, let's go out on a mission. And then we stop loving each other. Uh, and, and unfortunately, then what we tell the world is, hey, Jesus is good news for your afterlife, but you don't want to really find him for your present life because we don't even know how to love each other well but it's by our love that they'll know we're his disciples. So we need to be a community that deeply loves one another, but we're also on mission. And uh, oftentimes a community with no mission outside of themselves becomes codependent and oftentimes very toxic if we're not careful because they begin to just uh, look to each other for their, their kind of love and acceptance instead to Christ and then to Jesus's mission as a way of expressing their love for Christ. So a missional community, I think, keeps us in that tension of, we are a loving people on the mission of Jesus.
0: That's good, one of the problems that a lot of discipleship seeks to solve, and I know you guys tackle this as well, is when there's a break between what Christians say they believe and how they actually live out their lives. Talk about that and why it's actually a problem.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting because somehow we've bought into the idea that uh we can actually do one thing and say we believe another. And the Bible's pretty clear that your faith will come out of your mouth. It's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks, Jesus says, and it will it'll show up in your actions, as James is really clear, that faith really does work. It does produce works, and the works that we we are living out are actually just a visual of the the faith that we have. In other the way I say it more often now is your horizontal relationships are directly connected to your vertical relationship with God, that how you interact with God, believe about God, you know, what you think about God is always seen in what you do. So your faith takes on sight, you can see it. And so the the beauty of a missional community or a body of believers who are going to live life on life, life and community life on mission is we get to see each other's faith in action. And then we can say, hey, you know, I see that you you live with a lot of anxiety and fear, yet you say you believe in a God who is sovereign and in control and also very good. Can we talk about the disconnect? Because it seems as though you actually believe in a God who's out of control or not good, and that's why your anxiety continues to, to grip you. What would it look like if I could redirect you back to Jesus with the help of the Holy Spirit and show you a good and sovereign God who is with you and powerful for what you're facing? And that process is leading people to repent of the wrong view of God and turn to the right view of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. And when we do that on a regular daily basis, we're helping people actually get their faith centered on truth, which will produce an entirely different kind of outcome in their life. It will lead to the fruit of the Spirit, which in this case is peace. And so that kind of work is the work of discipleship. And we do that through normal, everyday life together as we observe faith in action
0: yeah, one of the one of the big discussions that we see that are happening today is around how the church can be more relevant. Um, we're talking a lot about developing strategies to be more relevant to the culture. I, I know you've mentioned that you have concerns about that strategy. Can you talk about why that might not be the best way for us to move forward?
1: Well, I think the fundamental problem with that is that when you start with the, the world and the culture directing what you do, then you, if you're not careful, you end up exchanging the truth of God for a lie. You end up worshiping the creation instead of the Creator, because that becomes the central driving piece of what you do, instead of saying, let's let our theology, which is our belief about God, express through our Christology, meaning how it's revealed in Jesus Christ, which also changes our ideology, the way we view ourselves. Let's let that drive what we do. And then relevance, I think, needs to be redefined. I think relevance is just relationship. Let's Once we're in relationship with God rightly, and then we're loving relationships with unbelievers or believers, then relevance is, how do I bring the truths of God expressed through Jesus to these people in a way that will be good news to them? I don't compromise the good news, but I think about how I communicate it or express it in a way that they will be able to understand. And that's just love. That's just gracious, salted speech or salted life that says, I want to bring life to you. I want to bring Jesus to you in a way that you can really get. And I think the heart of that is when you're in a relationship with people, you know how to be quote unquote relevant. Uh, It's not how do we bend ourselves to cultural demands. It's how do we engage in the culture like Jesus did in a word becoming flesh kind of way, In a let's be gospel centered, Jesus centered in the world with real flesh and blood but not compromise in any way whatsoever the truths of who God is and what he's done in Christ.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think that's the—you nailed the the temptation there is to, say, for the sake of of reaching the lost, you know, if there's things we can kind of boil out of our message, they might be more effective. And I think, yeah, we have to avoid that temptation.
1: Yeah, if we do, if we don't, we'll just be leading them to a false God anyway. So there's no no good news in that, because if you compromise the truths of God— to get them to come to God, then you've gotten them. You brought them to the wrong God, and that didn't change anything. That's already the problem.
0: Mm-hmm. If somebody comes to you and says, "You know, I'd love to lead one of these groups, but I feel like I'm not qualified, or I don't think I'd be able to do a good job," what are how do you walk them through that? Or uh, what are some of the things that make somebody able to lead one of these discipleship groups that you guys are talking about?
1: Yeah, I think I would probably want to just uh, tease that out a little bit and say what what is the reason for the sense of disqualification? If it's I don't have a character, I'm not, you know, I don't I don't know Jesus. I don't love Jesus. I don't love people. There's a brokenness inside of me in terms of my character. Then I'd say, Yeah, you probably need to get some help with that and get some believers around you to help you grow up into Christ likeness. But oftentimes what people mean is I don't feel qualified, meaning I don't know if I have the skill the ability, you know, this seems intimidating. And I would say if you've been transformed by the the power of the gospel, if you love Jesus and you have the word of God and you have the spirit of God, then you have what you need to start to call others to love and follow Jesus as well. And not everybody's gifted as a leader, but I am convinced that everybody is called to discipleship. And um, I would say, pray that God gives you a few people that can join you so you're not alone uh see if you can share the, the common vision of really being disciples together throughout the week who can make disciples of jesus and i'm convinced if you have the heart that christ has given you that's new and the new birth heart and you have the word and you have the spirit and a few other believers that have the same then i you have all you need um we really don't need a whole lot more than that uh to be faithful to the things jesus has called us to
0: that's really helpful what are some of the best practices, things that as you've, you've launched a lot of these groups that you're just seeing, wow, groups that do this tend to, tend to flourish really quickly?
1: Yeah. Well, I, now when I, I help people start new groups, I say, you know, you've got to have qualified leaders, meaning there's got to be some godly people together. So you've got to have that. If you don't have that, then, then you're in trouble. Um, and then you've got to have a clarified mission. Is there a people that you feel called to reach? Your neighborhood, co-workers, friends, so qualified leaders, clarified mission, and then a called people, some people that want to go with you on mission throughout the week and and begin to reorient their lives together. If you get those, then you make sure you build that group on a gospel foundation. Do they know the gospel? Do they know their gospel identity in Christ? And do they know how to live lives that demand a gospel explanation? In other words, they know enough about Jesus to know what it would look like to show what Jesus is like by the way they live. And then lastly, um, I encourage them to start reorient their lives around normal everyday rhythms, like eating, resting, playing, recreating, working, do all those rhythms, but do them much more intentional, realize that those are the places where Jesus wants to work. And so in eat with each other, play with each other, work with each other, rest together, uh, restore things together. Just begin to see the rhythms of life as the means in which you you work out your mission, and and therefore, for instance, I've seen a lot of groups go, "Man, I'm too busy." You know, we our kids are in sports. I'm like, there you go. That's it. Sports are your mission field. You're at the soccer field. You're hanging out with other parents on the sidelines. Why not see that as the mission field? Bring the extra drinks and fruit, throw the parties afterwards. Like, just use soccer or sports as your mission field. And instead of thinking it's another thing, just engage in what you're already doing with gospel
0: intentionality.
1: So those are some of the principles that we've tried to put in place as we help people get groups started.
0: I really like that. Can you clarify what uh, you mean by gospel identity? Yeah, that
1: comes back to that baptismal identity, baptizing in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we're family if you really know that you're loved dearly by God as family, then you'll love others. You always love with the love you've received. So if you are not loving like the Father, then it's maybe you don't know the Father's love. So let's get back to what the Gospel says about who you are. You were an enemy of God, now you're a dearly loved child of God. Do you believe that? If so, how would that change the way you live? So that we're family, that we're servants, that we're missionaries. So, and those are all rooted in the work of God. Uh, everything he's done to us, he wants to now do through us. And so let's ask, what has he done, and do you believe it? Another way of thinking about it is Peter uh, and Paul both regularly talk about the indicatives leading to the imperatives. What is true of you, no matter what you do, should lead to what you do. So you're holy people, live holy lives. You're loved by God, love others. You're righteous, declared righteous because of Christ, therefore live righteous lives. You're a generous people because you've been given great gifts in God. Now be generous to others because he's been generous to you. So it's always that indicative leading to the imperative, the what is true leading to what you do.
0: Well, Jeff, that is so good. This is such a a fabulous resource. Uh, As I've looked through, I just think you've put everything here that leaders need to to start an amazing discipleship group and to kind of wave that banner of discipleship. So thanks for being on the show and, and thanks for your work.
1: Thank you very much. I
0: appreciate it. Thanks to Jeff Vanderstel for joining us this week as our special guest on the Church Leaders Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, it helps us if you take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes and consider sending this episode to someone you know who would benefit from listening to it. Also, make sure to download the show notes for this episode at churchleaders.com forward slash podcast. The show notes always include resources mentioned in the show and links to some of our guest top content on churchleaders.com. As always, if you have ideas for how we can improve the podcast or guests that you'd like to hear us talk to, you can email us at podcast at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next week.
1: You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website, churchleaders.com.
0: Thanks for listening.